0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. to Body Justice Season 3. I promised you I'd be back. I had a great few months off, and I hope you all did too. I hope you had time to rest and recharge or just do whatever fuels your passions. So we are starting Season 3 off with a bang. I'm so excited to have Dr. Gaudiani back on the podcast. You may or may not know that she recently released an article about treating terminal anorexia, and specifically with MAID, which is Medical Assistance in Dying. Um, now, this is a controversial topic, but I really, really want you to hear Dr. G out, how she explains you know, what, what terminal anorexia is, how it's different from severe and enduring anorexia, and how we can treat it with dignity and love. There's going to be a two-part series to this because there's just so much to say. I really encourage you all to step away if it gets triggering um, and really just keep an open mind because there are a lot. No, there's not a lot. There's a few people with terminal anorexia that really, really fall through the cracks of treatment. Um, this is not the vast majority of eating disorder sufferers. I don't want this to feel like a hopeless conversation. Um, this is talking specifically about the very, very small percentage of folks who do unfortunately die from this illness. So, without further ado, I'm going to have Dr. G introduce herself. <music> So, Dr. G can you tell us a little bit about you? We've had you on the podcast before, but just tell us a little bit about you and um you know what inspired you to write the article about maid and um, terminal anorexia.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, as many of you know, I'm an internist who specializes in eating disorders. And my pathway that I really haven't described much on podcasts unlike my eating disorder pathway into this field. Um, My pathway into my passion about end-of-life care actually started when I was a medical student, Mm -hmm. and I was on my psychiatric rotation, and my resident was retraining after having been in a different field, and so he was older and very mature and thoughtful, and we were called to do a psych consult on a 75-year-old gentleman with cancer who was in the hospital who had told his medical team he thought that he would be ready to die when the time came. And it's just outrageous that we were asked to do a psychiatric consult for suicidality in such a case. I mean, (laughs) our country's relationship with death is so puzzling. But what I witnessed as a student in the room, because this gentleman was kind enough to let me sit in, was my resident doing a beautiful job, listening to this man's story, hearing how his experience of having had cancer was and hearing where his heart and mind were at this point in his life and who was supporting him. And it was just so beautifully done. So I'm sitting there in the back of the room with my eyes like this and tears brimming over. And all I could think of was, well, this man reminds me of my father. I'm not ready for my father to die. How can anyone show up and talk about these deeply tender topics and not lose it? So, you know, I, that's, that experience always stayed with me. And then as a fourth year student, I had the opportunity to interact with a patient who was very meaningful to me towards end of life. And then in residency, I just tended to find myself leaning into situations, whether I was rotating in the intensive care unit or on the wards, where really serious conversations had to be held about goals of care or about the potential for death to ensue, or about the fact that indeed someone was actively dying. I was struck by the fact that so few patients had had these conversations with their doctors. And of course, at this time, this had nothing to do with eating disorders. But I really loved the opportunity to gather family around, to to sit with the patient and listen. And I found that indeed, I was able to show up without crying. And sometimes I wept at the bedside, but I was able to remember how important and I want to say sort of special and magical the time is as we talk about death, because it is something all of us will experience. And in similar ways to birth, it is this vitally important subject, which is scary to many, but, but so important to talk about. And so I've, I've always had this in my heart. Fast forward to my acute years, and I met a number of patients who, after decades of attempted recovery and, you know, many times complete recovery followed by relapse, they would say, I'm a, I'm, I need to leave against medical advice. I'm, I, I don't want to do this. I understand that I might die. And so that was my first experience of this topic in my eating disorder world. And it, it felt quite different in important ways because... These were much younger patients, for the most part, than I had been used to discussing end-of-life care with, Um, and they had a psychiatric illness, or Mm -hmm. several, and so that felt different too, and yet my passion about people's voices mattering and, and allowing their choices for their bodies to be primary, front and center in these discussions, still held. And so back in those days, you know, we would get a psychiatric independent consultation to talk about decision-making capacity because I was convinced, you know, that these patients had capacity when, when we were having these serious talks, but it felt important to document another person assessing that. And in each case, we tried to involve family members and have really long conversations with the patient just to be sure is there any way we could change how we're caring for you here so this were more tolerable? Is there mm-hmm. any way that we could change how we're talking about what's going to happen after this hospitalization? Would that make this more tolerable? Is there any way we can show up in a you-centered way so that you don't feel like you have to leave? Because usually when a patient could leave acute, there was a, a reasonably high chance that they could die.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, I would often talk with patients, sisters and parents, etc., and ultimately what we would say is, you're always welcome back. We always mm-hmm. want you back. If anything changes, we want you. And there were one or two circumstances, uh, one in particular that I remember vibrantly where patients did come back a few times and, and you know, one just kept deciding to leave against medical advice and ultimately perished at home in a, in a terribly indignified way because in her home state, Her primary care doctor fired her upon hearing that she no longer wished to return to treatment and imagined that her death could ensue. She was in her mid thirties. And the local hospice agencies wouldn't accept anorexia nervosa as a terminal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so here, this brilliant, sensitive, extraordinary woman who had lived in treatment essentially for the better part of two decades, was finding herself living with her parents and increasingly incapacitated and physically and emotionally in terrible distress with no one to care for her. That is not a good death. And so her experience and that of a number of other patients whom I have lost over the years in the acute years um, where the deaths were more sudden and unexpected, deeply sank into my heart. So fast forward to my my outpatient clinical practice, where it is so important to emphasize 99.8% of the work that I do is towards life and recovery. It is towards honoring individuals' desires for their bodies at whatever level of recovery they can commit to at the time. The younger the patient, the more I am going to try to push for a certain level of recovery that we would all agree is sort of the gold standard. But the older patients get, the more I respect the medical trauma they've been through, the times that their voice hasn't been listened to, the times they've been denigrated, the times that they've been unseen or dismissed because they carry any mental health diagnosis. And I come to it more from a perspective of how can I ally with you to help you do what is maybe tolerable for your body at this time in your life.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so usually, again, you know, that that does not end in a patient's dying, It, it has to do with harm reduction, it has to do with maybe being the first doctor with ED experience they've been to so that we can ease the suffering of their digestive system, so that we can diagnose them with mast cell activation syndrome, treat their POTS, just make life more livable, mm-hmm. so that the idea of fighting for a recovery is less overwhelming and exhausting. So, every effort is put towards within a patient centered context how do we support life and wellness and joy?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But as it happened, I had the incredible blessing to care for three extraordinary, wonderful humans over the course of about two or three years. And we can talk about the details or people can read the article where their cases are shared in great detail. But um, it was clear to me that they had done everything a human could do and specifically everything they themselves as unique human beings could do towards recovery and then towards harm reduction and it was going to be impossible and they were going to die of their eating disorder so it was very clear to me from my past and my passions about this that they of course deserved hospice services and to celebrate the life lived, to attend to their physical and psychological suffering, to support their parents, to anticipate what will happen next medically, and to bear witness, to sit with them
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and to hold them. And for my, with, with my first two patients who perished, there was no literature. I mean, there's there's good literature about palliative care and anorexia by a wonderful psychiatrist, uh, Jill Yeager, who, uh, whom I co-wrote uh, our article with. And so I've used his writings for years to help guide me on this topic, especially during the acute days. Um, but when it came to my third patient, she herself had been a researcher. And I said, we need to put something in the literature about patients, this very rare subset of patients who will not be able to survive their anorexia. Would you like to be a posthumous author on this paper with me? She said, absolutely, absolutely I do. So in her last weeks of life, she wrote some of the most beautiful words imaginable, which appear in the paper advocating with such exquisite expression for what she needed. Mm -hmm. And so she and and Joel and I ultimately wrote up these three cases and proposed what are the clinical characteristics that seemed to, to apply to all three patients such that future clinicians, patients, family members might have some guidance to validate that this exists, that this class of patients is underserved because in mental health stigma and in the belief at people's core that anorexia can be fixed if they quote unquote, just eat. Yeah. Their voices aren't being heard and they, they risk what what Dr. Yeager so beautifully describes as death with indignity mm-hmm. instead of death with dignity. And so yeah. that's, that's what came to be.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that backstory and sort of your journey to this. I, I just love how you really highlight like the dying with dignity piece, because when I'm imagining, you know, the people that do die from anorexia, yeah, it's people that have been sort of overlooked and slipped through the cracks. Like, it's just so, it's so sad. And I don't think it's on the patient to blame and we'll get into that part. But I think a lot of it is like, the way treatment and everything is set up Um, and of course the nature of anorexia and comorbid diagnoses that why do we treat it like it's not a chronic health condition you know like for many people it is chronic and that doesn't mean that you didn't try harder or didn't you know whatever it's like everyone's journey is so uniquely different
1: yeah that's absolutely right
0: And I like how you mentioned too, like our relationship culturally to death, because yeah, like it's this taboo, like thing that we know, no, no one in the field wants to talk about. It's not, it doesn't feel hopeful. It feels, you know, hard or scary. Um, I think it brings up a lot of like clinicians own difficulty with tolerating discomfort. Um, But if we think about death and birth, like rites of passage, right? How do we hold people in those transitions? How do we set aside our own discomfort and really center what they need?
1: Yeah, exactly. and that's, that's that's so right. And people will bring any number of different religious, cultural, and personal experiences to their relationship to the subject. Um, what's important is that we always hold the patient at the center of it. Yes personal or religious beliefs cannot on the provider's side be the guiding force. It must be the patient who leads. Mm -hmm. Um, And in talking with many colleagues about this article, since it was published, they noted that, uh, and they're quite senior experts in the eating disorder field, that if they had heard about this topic when they were younger clinicians, they would have been horrified. Mm -hmm. What oh everybody can be saved don't, how can you say this, how can you imagine, how can you quote unquote give up hope and they say now that we've been in the field. We all know patients that Mm -hmm. we loved and lost and in whom it was clear, despite everyone's best efforts, most of all the patients that this was an unsurvivable disease. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The fact that death rates in anorexia nervosa range from six times age-matched population to 25 or 35 times age-matched population, where men die often at double the rate of women, especially if they've been inpatient before. What we have to realize is this is happening. Mm -hmm. Death is happening from anorexia nervosa. So naming it and trying to highlight and give voice to the patients who will experience it so that they may receive all of the care duly afforded them by law and by ethics at the end of their lives like anybody else with a terminal illness, none of that creates more death or or breathes it into life. This is happening and we need to tend to these patients.
0: A hundred percent. And I think that's one big like qualm I have with like eating disorder care and, and also just like other mental health conditions, but like, especially for eating disorders, the more chronicity you, we usually see less care. Mm-hmm. And that is so heartbreaking. And that's what I love about what you're saying is that you are actually giving them more attunement and more care at such a crucial time. Um, because like, even like other psychiatric conditions, like schizophrenia or bipolar, of course they have their own unique hardships in the landscape of mental health, but you can, you can meet requirements for like disability benefits, like different government things, anorexia or eating disorders in general don't have that. There's just such this pervasive stigma that it's like a choice and it's not,
1: it is not That's exactly right. And there's such a profound difference from individuals who have suffered, who have had extreme medical instability, who have had no medical instability, who have been sick for X number of decades. Anyone who wishes to continue trying for any level of recovery must be warmly and joyfully supported in that at every level from the clinician to the family, to the insurance company, Anyone who still has the fire in them must be supported in that across Mm -hmm. the board. And you're right. They don't get enough support and they don't get enough of the right kind of support. Mm -hmm. For instance, all too infrequently, comorbid psychiatric conditions are not addressed. Mm -hmm. Medical conditions are not addressed. Trauma is not addressed because everybody gets stuck at, well, nothing can be done until you're nourished. And the whole point is that so many people cannot get nourished until some of these other elements are, are addressed. You know, as I think about trauma approaches, as I think about comorbid ADHD, OCD, of course, Mm -hmm. is a a vitally important theme for you. Many patients have had that kicked down the the block because people say, well, now we got to get this anorexia managed first. And it's been decades of that. So everyone who wants to keep getting treatment, 100% I support. I couldn't, I can't say it more clearly. And then there is this other very rare subclass. Mm-hmm. They say, I don't want to die, but I cannot keep doing what it takes to live. hmm And it is that subpopulation that I'm talking about. There is no part of me as we laid out the criteria, which fundamentally are diagnosis of anorexia, age over 30, um, prior engagement in high quality eating disorder care, broadly defined, and in a patient who has decision-making capacity recognizing that they are making a choice, neither to go back to a higher level of care, nor to care for themselves in the outpatient setting in a way that is congruent with sustaining life, understanding that death will ensue from malnutrition. All four have to be met, all Mm -hmm. four, because a number of people who have expressed concern about the article have said, well, you know, how, how dare you? So you're saying that someone who's 38, who's been really ill, can't survive? No, of course. All four mm-hmm.
0: Yes, no, I could I could hear that. Um, I could imagine that backlash because I think too in the literature about severe and enduring anorexia, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it's like the first, so it's like when a person has chronic anorexia for over seven years, right? And then but the research shows that within 20 years, most people do make a stable recovery. Um, so I guess, yeah, that brings up the point, like, how do we know when it's severe and enduring anorexia and terminal anorexia? Like, are there medical kind of things going on that is like irre- irreversible at that time?
1: There actually aren't. There are no physical exams. There's no study you can do. There's no lab work you can do that determines this, which makes it even harder
0: Yeah. because,
1: you know, doctors are really only comfortable with things we can measure. Yeah. Um, but, but the key differentiator is in the vast world of individuals with severe and enduring anorexia, where the definition you gave is reasonable, other ones in the literature, because it's not been completely settled, say people who've been sick for more than three years, you know, I mean, mm. it, it's a very broad yeah. hate definition. But a I don't know of- anyone that's recovered in three years. Yeah, exactly, precisely. <laughs> so, I mean, we're we're really talking about a lot of people. Maybe the vast majority of those with anorexia nervosa qualify to be yeah. during anorexia. The vast majority of those individuals will go on to recover or to live a harm reduced life that is, you know, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is when somebody says. I can no longer do what is necessary to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And they happen to have a version of anorexia that has clearly in the past led to a level of medical instability that is likely to lead to death. For instance, the reason that we only isolate out anorexia nervosa here is not, I hope, I think, due to the age-old medical research tendency to... Honor those with anorexia above all other eating disorders, mm-hmm. or to be sizeist, it's because the cause of death will be malnutrition. Right. If anorexia is not tended to. Now, with atypical anorexia, which is a terrible term, you know that I absolutely mm-hmm. hate it. And which, of course, is what the majority of people with anorexia have. They don't have underweight anorexia. My 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 belief, my clinical experiences is, is that they seem to have a genetic capacity to spare certain systems, including potentially becoming emaciated Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in a way that is more likely to be life protecting. Mm -hmm. And with bulimia nervosa, with binge eating disorder, it is not absolute that if the behaviors continue, the person will die. Unlike with anorexia where if profound malnutrition continues, and underweight continues, they will die of hypoglycemic cardiac arrest. Um, And so that's really important sort of along those criteria. But what's key is is that only those who say, I'm done with treatment, Mm -hmm. I will never go back to a higher level of care, and I cannot find rest in harm reduction, Mm -hmm. and I have a history of becoming very medically unstable when I'm at this stage of my illness. And I have a long-term relationship with at least one highly expert eating disorder provider Mm -hmm. under whose care I still have not been able to, to live a better life. And I have capacity and that my decision about my body over time remains constant that I cannot survive this
0: yeah. and that I
1: cannot, even though it grieves me deeply, do what it would take to survive. I accept my death, even as I do not embrace it. That, I mean, there are so many elements to this Mm -hmm. to qualify for terminal anorexia nervosa. So the just a tiny population of patients, but one that merits our advocacy
0: Absolutely, thanks for breaking that down, because I think that's so important like we can't get fixated on one kind of one of those cornerstones. Um, And I like that you highlighted like over time, you know that decision that that knowing that I cannot continue, you know, like I can't do what it takes to live. Um, I think that's really important because you know, I, I think as eating disorder providers, we hear a lot that I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I can't do another treatment. You know, like that's pretty common, but when it's constant over time, and the person is suffering medically, psychologically, like, yeah, you, like, why shouldn't we have the right to choose to be in, you know, both less pain when we die and also um, just held, like you said? Um, because recovery, the way it, the way it is set up is doesn't work for everyone. That's right. The
1: reality is, is that also feeling hopeless, feeling despair, feeling like they'll never see the light at the end of the tunnel, feeling exhausted, traumatized. Those are pretty universal experiences in Mm -hmm. those with anorexia and eating disorders in general, but the will to live remains powerful even in those with chronic suicidality yeah the will to live remains very powerful and so it is only when that is extinguished and consistently so over time that we understand again we've sort of carved out this unique population
0: Mm-hmm. And you notice that difference from, you know, like the chronically suicidal patient um, who, you know, doesn't want doesn't want to do care, but or doesn't want to do recovery, but still has that sort of fire in them um, versus the ones that, you know, just just don't have that fire at all anymore.
1: Yeah, they're they're They understand that it's time to change their goals of care to their comfort, their dignity, celebrating mm-hmm. the life lived reconnecting with family members with whom they may have had a very contentious relationship for years as the family members had to be, the policeman, the, the mm-hmm. watchdog, um, all these years, the person who was enforcing recovery, go back to treatment, etc. All of the patients that I've been so blessed to take care of in, in this realm, their families talk about how wonderful it is just to be allowed to love their child again.
0: Yeah. The,
1: just love. Mm-hmm. No one's trying to get anything done anymore. And, and that is such an innate emotion that remains so profound and true.
0: Yeah. That's something I really noticed when reading the article that like, you know, in all the situations, this was, you know, the family felt like it was the right thing before and after, um, and, and the relief too, to not see their loved ones suffering anymore. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. Can we talk a little bit about the decision-making capacity component? Cause I'm sure lots of people have questions about that. Like what do you use to go about that decision-making capacity?
1: Yeah. So in these situations, typically one of my patients will go see an independent psychiatrist to have a decision-making capacity evaluation performed. And mm-hmm. as a non-psychiatrist, I don't know all of the details that go into that, Um, but two of my three patients in this article as described did have those capacity evaluations done and absolutely passed them. But fundamentally what I do when I'm assessing whether somebody seems to be in a place to be making this decision is to evaluate over the course of not only session by session conversations, but those over time, does this person understand the information I'm sharing? Do they have the capacity to look at it from a variety of perspectives and really understand from their own, from their familial, from their own cultural, sort of what are the implications of the information being shared? Do they make a consistent uh, set of decisions? You know, are we, is it, is it clear over time that this is a steady decision and they continue to have the same relationship with it. That doesn't mean that people aren't ambivalent about, I'm, I'm fearful of dying, I'm sad at the prospect of my death, I'm, I'm really sad that my parents, that my siblings, that my partner will mourn me. But, but that, you know, sort of there's a consistency there and that they really understand alternatives and how to apply those to their own life. It does not require someone, you know, having decision-making capacity does not require someone to agree with every topic the clinician agrees with. Hmm. It does not require them to have the same thoughts about the world. It does not require them to have a deep evaluation of all other ideas they have about the world. For instance, if somebody who has alcohol use disorder enters the hospital, is in alcohol withdrawal, completes it, but has an infection and says, I'm leaving the hospital against medical advice. You know, they wanna know, do you understand you have an infection? Do you understand that the oral antibiotics we give you may not be enough, that we could lose this leg, that you're welcome back anytime. As long as the person understands those things, the doctor doesn't ask that person, now listen, do you believe the earth is flat? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about vaccines? You know, they're not evaluating every thought they have on every topic. They're making sure they understand the implications of this topic. So what those who are concerned about this particular part say is someone with anorexia nervosa, especially anorexia plus OCD, Mm -hmm. cannot possibly make a decision that will result in their life ending because the fundamentals of what they feel they can't do revolve around what their mental illness is giving them distortions on.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: how can you allow somebody to make a decision for their body when they are so narrowly distorted, even if they're really smart and understand the rest of the world? And the answer lies in the fact that even when my patients have a profound fear of body change, of what food means, of what um, it, it might mean in their OCD for something to become contaminated and potentially harmful to them. All of these patients maintain the ability to say, I get to choose for my body. I know what I have been through and I know what has harmed me and what has helped me and what I believe will be futile should I be asked to do it again.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: I have the capacity to understand my relationship within my family, my beliefs, my spirituality, my own values and goals. And I still get to choose for my body, Mm -hmm. even if the reason that I cannot go on has to do with a mental illness.
0: Yes, 100%. I mean, as a survivor of anorexia and OCD, I mean, I lived the first 27 years of my life with OCD untreated and, you know, I still got a college degree. I still got, you know, you still have like, it's so tricky. Cause like, unless you've had OCD, I think it's really hard for people to understand. Like, you know, that the obsessions are not necessarily logical, but you can't change the fact that the obsessions come in. Um, and, the gold standard treatments for both eating disorders and OCD um, often fail people, you know, like, so it's just, uh, yeah. And it's same with anorexia. It's such a unique condition that again, if you, if you haven't lived with it, it's really hard to understand how, yes, you still have a lot of decision-making capacity. Um, You know, we see this all the time with our clients who are in grad school and, you know, doing all these, there is no lack of knowledge. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> there is right.
1: No I lack find of- it interesting. That there are certain irregularities and inconsistencies here that are important to bring our attention to. For instance, the stereotype would have, and obviously there's always uh, you know variations from a stereotype, that people with anorexia are going to be among your hardest workers. They will get the job done. They will do it beautifully. They will work harder than anybody else and it's very interesting
0: mm-hmm.
1: graduate school programs and workplaces are perfectly happy to accept the decision making capacity to continue to overwork yes someone with anorexia but when it comes to their permission to choose their goals of care or whether they can continue on the earth. Oh no, this person doesn't have capacity.
0: Right. That's
1: interesting. And it shows where our own biases as providers come in that we must be the ones to save lives. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Any serious eating disorder provider, especially who's worked in the outpatient setting, is going to know that there are people who cannot survive this mm-hmm. and that there are also people who continue to survive and thrive and they go on to amazing wonderful lives reasonable lives against all the odds so it's not that the provider is looking for people who meet these criteria to say you're done right you're now. Die from this. it's all about holding space for the individual patient Who's, who's in this head frame. And, mm-hmm. and I have to say that I've had plenty of these conversations seriously with patients over the years and the vast majority do not lead to the patient's death. Mm-hmm. But I think that the patient having a serious conversation with an experienced provider, when they've heard their whole life, if you don't do this better, you're gonna die. But to really hear laid out, look, there's real risk right now of your death. Here's how it's going to happen. Unless something changes. What mm-hmm. do you want for your body? You get to choose, but I need to make sure you hear from my medical expertise that this, this is what's where we're going here. They'll say that they appreciate it, that they feel validated, that somebody's actually taking this seriously because it's so hard for the eating disorder to validate itself sufficiently. But furthermore, really having a serious conversation like, look, something's gotta change here, we're at a crossroads. Either we're gonna change your goals of care and we're gonna move towards a palliative space and eventually a hospice space or something really needs to change. And this is where we are. Oftentimes having that conversation and having the provider say, I will will go with you whatever you choose. Mm
0: -hmm. You
1: choose for your body, I will be here to support you. Allows them to take back their autonomy And very often, the individual will choose to try to go back toward recovery and life. Mm -hmm. And so we have to have this conversation, because it is clearly what's at at stake. If we don't have the conversation, either the patient proceeds on to death, because nobody really talked to them in, in detail about it, or their rights are taken before they even have the opportunity to consent for themselves and then their intention and rebellion against a system that's once again removed their autonomy. So it's you know it's it's fundamental to medical consent for the doctor to really lay out all of what could happen and then allow the patient to choose for themselves. In an 18-year-old? No. No. Nope. Yeah. In a 23 year old, no. Even in a 26 year old, there are so many people who have sort of this delayed maturation as they hit their end of 20s, early 30s, where folks who never thought they could survive just have this moment and they move towards recovery. So we have to hold space for that and goad them and push them and sometimes remove autonomy to help them survive those dark years. But once they're over 30, even though that is such a young age, they've been through it. They get Mm -hmm. to choose.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. And another point that I think is important to bring up is like, so in the article, you know, it it talks about like, um, one of the criteria being someone going through high quality, intensive eating disorder treatment. And, And I know you mentioned like you, it's a broad statement, right? Like, how do we even quantify like high quality eating disorder treatment because I just yeah I just think that's really so much has to change in the landscape of eating disorder care, even in the high quality settings.
1: Yeah, you're, you couldn't be more right. and. You know, again, the whole reason for being of my clinic is to change what high quality care looks like from a medical perspective in the outpatient setting and in other levels of care. And that's why I wrote the book and it's why I lecture to try to help people do the medical side of this better so that we can meet our patients better and provide better treatment what we felt as authors was really important about not being more explicit in our criteria for who qualified quote unquote to have having done good enough care rested on a number of factors one across the world to whom this is relevant there are very very different opportunities for care Mm -hmm. so if we were to lay out an american standard of care born under an American system where some Americans have the capacity to pay that didn't Mm -hmm. feel right. So it has to be within the geography of this patient's experience. What is the highest quality care that they've had access to? Got it. I prefer, I feel most comfortable in a situation like this with a patient. If they have recently experienced good quality residential care, they have fully weight restored, so their brain is less likely to be distorted by the medical changes of a starved brain and have gotten adequate medication trials and certain other exposures like to ketamine for PTSD, Mm -hmm. depression and OCD, or to um, TMS for, for severe depression and sometimes for OCD. I would love them to have gotten all of that, to have stepped down through all the levels of care, practiced life, and then come to the realization, you know, no, I just can't do this anymore if I relapse. But this is reality. This is not a fairy tale.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: the fact that certain patients, in fact, two in the article had not completed that We have to understand why that was and the why for them, because both did have financial resources for these care, which is not true, and we'll get to that. It was intolerable to them. Mm
0: -hmm. Their
1: systems were wired in a way that being in a group setting amongst other ill people, it was intolerable to them. Mm -hmm. And we have to listen to that. You know, so many times family members or caregivers will say, Well, tough, you know, I mean, this is the treatment. Don't be so sensitive, get to it. That's the gold standard. And yes, we have to change treatment and make it so much better. And yes, there are so many ways in which we need to do that. But the reality is that if you are wired such that you both have critical chronic anorexia nervosa and an inability to tolerate the care settings that could help, That's no different than having the kind of genetics where your platelets or your other blood tests instantly react to chemo in a way that makes chemo intolerable. Mm -hmm. Those are absolute adverse effects that make you unable to receive chemo that others can get. So we have to understand that excruciating sensitivity as being one of the reasons this person cannot survive it. Mm -hmm people our frustration and ire or or our look of disdain like you didn't even finish treatment ever oh my goodness let us please continue to look at the individual
0: right third
1: across so many markers of disparity sexual gender racial religious economic people don't have access no. to the kind of care that's optimal that i just described And so to say that only someone with resources across the board who has been to X number of treatments and failed them, only they are eligible for compassionate, appropriate end-of-life care is inappropriate. And it perpetuates the system of oppression in which this person's needs are not heard and met.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you made that point because I think that was one thing I thought about when reading the article. I'm like, but what about all the people that cannot access all, you know, the fancy treatments and all the things like, does that mean they don't get to die in dignity? You know, like, so I'm really glad you made that point.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, and and people can say, but everyone should have access to it, but they don't. I agree. Yeah, They don't. Right. And so if that person is going to die of anorexia and somebody looks at a paper like mine, but there's very specific criteria they have to have met and they weren't able to ever meet those criteria and they say, I'm so sorry, you don't meet it. That person dies in pain. Mm -hmm. That person is forced into a situation where suicide is their only out. That's not acceptable.
0: No, I agree. I mean, we know that higher levels of care sometimes oftentimes traumatize people, you know? And, you know, I don't think it's necessarily like providers having the intention to traumatize people. I think it's a lot to do with like just the landscape of managed healthcare um, and what we define as gold standard um, and just how unsafe treatment is for folks in certain bodies. Um, So I would love to hear from you. Like, what do you think is going on in the landscape of eating disorder care that is failing patients?
1: Mm. Oh my gosh. I
0: know well, that's a long, <laughs> yeah, we could probably have
1: a whole podcast series on yeah. that. Uh, you know, I think a, it's a complicated disease. And, and if somebody had figured out how to do anorexia treatment perfectly, we would all be the better for it. Mm-hmm. But what we know is that each individual's experience of what is helpful, of what helped them turn the corner of what sustained them, each person's experience is different. hmm Meds, the approach, the clinical approach, the, the, the medical problems as they were managed, the, the family interactions. So I, I want to start by saying it's a very complex disease. And there's no sense that I have of like, ah, I know exactly how to do this because boy, do I not, I wish mm-hmm. I did. Um, but I also think that there are fundamental flaws in the system. Among them, but these are all money-making systems these yes. are all for-profit systems and um i think in many cases money has gotten ahead of clinical prowess of readiness to care for patients who need residential. It's easy for a venture capital firm to buy up a program, begin saying that programs need to open all over the country and open a new res program with someone who's three months out of school and some BHTs who've never met a patient with an eating disorder before and call it residential. I mean, that is just unfair. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard for families to understand where the quality is. And we know that a lot of senior clinicians flee these programs, ultimately, because they don't feel that their values congruent. So then you lose that extraordinary base of experience, wisdom, compassion, respect. And it's replaced by just younger people who haven't done this enough. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a big problem in, in the treatment world. I think it's a huge problem that there are no programs explicitly for people who are of older age. Yes. It's such a problem because when my patients in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s need a higher level of care, even just a respite, take the edge off, let their body rest and nourish for a piece, they don't want to be surrounded by 20-year-olds. No. You know, they need peers who may have had similar life experiences. So that's a big problem. Um, The inability to address trauma and the tendency to trigger trauma in higher levels of care is almost infinite Mm -hmm. from just seeing other people suffering and sort of being asked on demand to share your trauma story and hear other people's trauma stories. Like once you walk through the doors, you no longer have the right to consent to what you share. Super problematic. And then, you know, just experiences of trauma in terms of sort of forced feeding, forced drinking of supplements, anything that removes someone's autonomy and that also gaslights them in the experience of suffering because of it. Like, stop complaining, this is getting you better. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, there's just too many resonances with past trauma there. And then again, because the anorexia, in this case, since that's what we're talking about, is so out in front from a provider perspective, providers aren't thinking about Ketamine, or even prazosin and old blood pressure medicine that helps reduce PTSD activation and reduces um, super vibrant nightmares overnight. They're not thinking about these things because they keep thinking anorexia first, everything else. Second. Yes. Oh. I've met so many people with OCD and anorexia who've never been offered ERP
0: mm-hmm. because they have anorexia. Like, oh no, anorexia first. Well, gosh. (laughs) That is so backwards because when you are in a restrictive um, place in your body and mind, OCD gets 10 times louder. So an anorexia is actually like a survival strategy because it short-term quiets out the obsessions. So like you really can't say focus on eating disorder first, like There's, you know, that's one thing I'm so passionate about and like educating providers on like treating concurrently because you can actually augment treatment to be targeting both. You might not come out like fully recovered from OCD and anorexia at the same time, but at least you're in a place where you have more internal capacity. Um, And yeah, it's just, there, yeah. There's no like linear. Yeah, Yeah, I couldn't agree
1: more. And I think a really important one that's often underlooked or overlooked is um, ADHD treatment. Yes. For patients who meet ADHD criteria who have anorexia so often, and I was one of these in the past, they, are, have, they have their stimulants withheld, either initiating mm-hmm. them or continuing them on the premise that stimulants can reduce appetite and cause weight loss. Um, guess what? Anorexia recovery is not about listening to your appetite. Yeah, It's prescriptive. Yes, and if you actually give someone who has ADHD and anorexia a stimulant, oftentimes they become more rested and able to sit and meal plan and tolerate the process of therapy than they ever had. One patient of mine described it as the first time she finally got a stimulant, it was like putting glasses on for the first time. Yes. The world just came into focus. And so we have to stop being fearful and really stigmatizing those with anorexia, punishing them for the crime of anorexia through neglecting their other needs.
0: I agree. And I think that you know goes back to the stigma with ADHD too. It's not just like being distracted. It's like emotion regulation, it's mood, it's decision-making, like executive functioning, like all of which are needed to be able to nourish ourselves. So I could not agree more. And I saw that a lot when I worked in like different levels of care and with substance abuse, that was a common thing too. It's like, well, if you don't give someone the medication they need, they're, they're going to medicate in another way, yeah, that's whether right. that's with food or that a different substance that's going to harm them more.
1: And I think too many people, clinicians and patients and families believe that trauma work in a program for eating disorders means we're now going to talk through in detail how I was traumatized, and I'm gonna emerge from this three week program healed. Oh no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, we have to have a trauma informed approach. We have to help with symptoms of how PTSD shows up in people's minds and bodies and sleep and mood. And we have to give them a safe framework within which they can imagine both occupying their bodies and in the outpatient setting ultimately slowly engaging EMDR or whatever other modality is needed to help them survive the world. Um, but there's just, there's so many misconceptions out there and it contributes to poor treatment.
0: Really? It does. I think some of the best treatment is outpatient. And this is something I've been talking to clinicians a lot about is like, how do we sort of, you know, if higher level of care, if we know this is going to be more harmful to the client and the client does not want to go, um, how can we sort of set up like a mock higher level of care outpatient really connecting people to peer supports and community and maybe it's amping up therapy to two or three times a week and medical and dietitian appointments to multiple times a week and meal supports like kind of coaching yeah and like just setting that up in their community because I think we heal best in relationship and community and Higher levels of care when managed care says, okay, you know, two weeks, you're good, step down, like you're not creating stability.
1: No, that's such an important point. And, and you're absolutely right. I should have mentioned that as one of the biggest drawbacks of the managed care world. I mean, I think while residential and higher level of care programming, without a doubt, can be life saving, and I've seen it many times be so, it also has the potential to set the patient up simply to reinforce the eating disorder bias, which is, I'm not sick enough. Mm-hmm and a half into res, they're now bumping somebody down to PHP who in the past would have been hospitalized. And so it just reinforces this like, oh, I guess I'm not sick enough. And that's in those with anorexia, much less those who aren't in emaciated bodies who get even more stigmatized against. Right.
0: A hundred percent agree. This was such a good conversation. And I feel like I could go on for hours talking about this with you. There's so many intricacies. We might have to do like a part two. I would
1: love that because we haven't even talked about medical aid in dying and and sort of that aspect of all this. So maybe, maybe we talk about that in the future because it is an important aspect to this. It is yet another subset within those with terminal anorexia as a potential option where it is legal, but it is its own sort of separate conversation, perhaps.
0: Yeah, let's plan to do a part two, because I'm cognizant of not taking too much of your time, and I know we both probably have clients and meetings and all the things. Um, So yeah, I'll reach out to Megan and and do a part, we could do a part two, but this was wonderful and such a good start to this conversation.
1: I enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much for all that you do. I feel like these conversations are really important for patients to hear and couldn't be more grateful.
0: I agree. And same to you. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye, Dr. G. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Body Justice. If you want to find more about my work, please find me on Instagram at bodyjustice.therapist. You can also find me on my website, www.eatingdisorderoctherapy.com. I am taking new clients at this time. My practice is growing. And so I'm so excited to announce that. Um, So please, if you would like support with eating disorder, OCD, body image, anxiety, there is a link in my Instagram bio where you can sign up for support. All right. I will see you all next time.